Good learning listeners. Welcome back to Pedagogy Non Grata, where we bridge the gap between the scientific literature and teaching practices in the classroom. I'm your host, Robert. And I know some of you are out there thinking, wait a minute, Robert, where have you been? Yes, I've been away for about a year. And uh, I can explain that very easily. I made the most novice mistake of getting into Toronto traffic at peak rush hour. But I'm here now. So I have an exciting, fascinating discussion today. It's going to be somewhat contentious at time because we're going to be raw and we're going to get down to some of the nitty gritties about um, what it means to be uh, a part of a racialized community from the perspective of education and from the perspective of educators. Uh, our guest today is Mitchell Brookins, and I'm going to allow him to introduce himself so that you can hear it straight from the source. Mitchell, how about you uh, introduce yourself to the listeners? Hi, everyone. I'm grateful to be here. My name is Mitchell Brookins, and I started my whole career as an educator truly in um, the south side of Chicago. Um, if you know about the south side of Chicago, High Park area, you would understand that um, the student population that I serve um, definitely was predominantly African-American, but it was also diverse, where I had students who were of other you know, perspectives and other lived experiences, such as um, Asian, Hispanic, and white. Um, and all of those were like just pivotal experiences for me to really understand what does it mean to you know educate uh, a classroom body of students who have, you know, different walks of life. But beyond, you know, that teaching third, fifth, and sixth grade ELA, um, and also some first grade pullout for um, literacy intervention, I got to a place in my own career where I wanted to do more. And that more actually came um, to fruition with me achieving National Board Certification in Literacy. And that was in 2009. So already you can know that I'm, I'm on my 18th year in education. But um, achieving National Board Certification really propelled me to really look at my own practice. And once I really analyzed my own practice, I felt this sense of calling that I wanted to help other teachers. So in 2010, I I left the classroom, um, got into a, a district level job supporting RTI, literacy coordinator um, there in Chicago public schools. But then I would say around 2013, I came to New Orleans for Mardi Gras and I fell in love. And if you know anything about Mardi Gras, you understand why I fell in love. And, and I fell in love with the culture, the place, and I moved to New Orleans. And that was the time where I actually started my, you know, a significant part of my career as a school administrator. And here in New Orleans, I've had the esteemed privilege to support teachers, support students um, in achieving, you know, academic success. So from one school changing it from, you know, a failing school to a, a passing school, 16 percent growth in another school when it came to ELA. And then finally, one of my my key experiences here um, with Dwight Eisenhower um, in one year changing that school also from um, a D to a C. And as I said, it was nothing of my own. It was all on the backs of the efforts of children, the motivation of teachers, and just our collective effort to really um, just improve academic outcomes for students. 
And so now I am in the consulting realm and world with leading educators as a senior director, um, supporting um, school districts with professional learning around math and ELA. And then on the side, I, I truly just enjoy just working with um, training teachers um, as a letters trainer, Ames Institute trainer, um, Unbound Ed. I just, I get around. I think I'm starting to become the, the hustler uh, of education, just doing multiple things to, to build a platform to truly do what I love to do. And that is um, advocating for the eradication of illiteracy. Right. Wow. That's 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 exactly what I was um, looking to hear about, um, particularly where you talked about um, that collective self-advocacy, because I think when it comes to marginalized communities, especially ones that are coming from various backgrounds, as you said, um, sometimes I wonder, I know this question is going to be off script, but um, I wonder um, what is the first step what is that how do you get that onboarding how do you get that that collective self-efficacy going between parents teachers and students when you're walking into a school uh, a district um, any type of institution what what is that first thing you're looking to accomplish it's interesting that you say that because I think in this work, we we tend to think of head and heart. And I truly believe that in any school, that first initial step is that you have to lead with your, you have to lead with, you know, your heart. I, I believe that it's important to connect before you correct. And so you have to be at a place where you have the mindset with parents, with students that I truly care about your success. And for me personally, it's more than just academics. It is saying that I see these children in the future. I see them in a different space. And I want to have such an impact that they can stand in the future without me. And so it's beyond the reading. It's beyond the math. It's beyond the get in line in, in, in classroom management. It's really seeing that child um, for who they are and, and wanting to be a part of their, their journey of you know, even their lineage as to how they are going to matriculate and grow up and evolve into a human being. Um, and, I, and I just think that's so important. It's a deeply held belief um, that I'm there to empower that. I'm there to support that. That is my role. That's my calling. Um, and I think that's first. And I think once children, and I always say this always, like when children really get a sense that you are serious, and you care are just about their development as humans, it catapults to even more than that. Um, and then parents as well, because one thing a parent can't, you know, a parent can't take away from you is that once you connect with their child, they see it, they feel it, they experience it. And, and that becomes the fertile ground to actually, you know, discuss how do we, how do we grow together? How do we move our, you know, this child together as a team? Well, yeah, no, you know, I would, I would say that's been my experience as well. Um, I find that a lot of people, they want to connect with you before they really want to engage with you. 
Um, and I know that that might be a, a interesting way of putting that, but I feel like a lot of people, um, they've been let down by many initiatives before. They've been let down by a lot of promises before. So they really want to be able to feel like they can trust what you're offering and that you're here for the long, the long haul, right? That, that you uh, are a stakeholder in what you are attempting to do with them. Um, I agree with that. I think, you know, this is even contentious topic, even in our field as well, because we do have educators who feel as if they don't have to do that. You know, I don't have to be the child's friend. They don't have to like me. I don't have to love them. And, you know, all of those different pieces. And and I totally understand that. But there is something, you know, to me, it's not about like love, but it's about I am here to empower you. I am I am I am going to commit to you. I'm dedicating my services to you so that one day you, you come into the fullness of who you are as a human being. And I'm just one piece of it. And and I and I agree with you when it comes to parents as well, because whether or not we want to admit it or not, there are parents who have trust issues with the educational system. And they have trust issues for a variety of reasons. Depending on, for example, if if I'm the parent where my mathematical skills are not as high, my reading skills and writing skills and communication skills may not be as developed. School may not be a place of that is a safe haven for me. I may have had experiences in this educational system where starting in first grade, I was told I was going to be nothing. And so I have a mistrust for educators. I have a mistrust for the educational system. And point blank, period, we have certain people who are out in this world right now who are starting to discover that, oh, my goodness, what did I really learn in school? And this school really equipped me. And now my child is in this system as well. And I'm seeing similar patterns. And sometimes as educators, we don't realize that parents are bringing baggage as well. And if you truly want to have a partnership, a relationship, a rapport, you want to be a stakeholder, a piece of that is going to be understanding that baggage, understanding how it creeps up. What does that mean? And there will be times like in any relationship, you may have to carry more of the weight at times than them. You know, and so parents are looking for that. They want to trust, you know, they're trusting you with one of their most precious beings, and that is their child. And so you have to understand that it's a little bit different. And sometimes as educators, we get so, you know, we're so quick to talk about the lesson, the objective, right? But yet we have not truly built a rapport yet. Um, and that's with the parent and the and the student. So I, 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 I truly agree with you when you just said like that trust piece is so crucial and we just have educators who either miss the boat or don't realize how important it is. Right. I, I actually think it's, it comes down to training. Sometimes I feel like when I actually finally got the courage to be an educator, which is something I always wanted to do, but it was something that I didn't have a lot of support on that. I was actually quite shocked about 
how limited some of the training was before you got put in front of a classroom. And I was also shocked about how little they go into screening about who you are as a person and like what what you're actually trying to accomplish in the classroom and, and whether you have that ability to connect with, with students or not. And I feel like what you're describing that that vision you're creating um, in a school system saying, I'm here to empower you. Sometimes it's very difficult without models. Um, sometimes we can't actually, what you're, what you're aspiring to is something that's hard to point to to say, this is an example of it and this is how we get there. So some people would describe that as representation. I know a lot of my students, when I walk into the class, just the fact that they have a, a black male teacher is phenomenal to them because for them this is an experience they've never had um and they never expected they would so that that representation becomes this this critical factor i don't know exactly how much it equates um in the whole scheme of things but i would love to hear your take on on black representation in education it's really interesting that you're asking that question because that is actually a piece of my doctoral work um, for the past, I guess now, probably the past like seven years, I have studied um, Black education specifically, you know, as we talk about from the era of segregation to desegregation up until now. And um, to really see that as it relates to Black educators, we're still around like 7 to 8% of the teaching force is Black. And we know about 2% of that is Black males. And, but yet we have an overwhelmingly significant amount of children, especially in urban schools, who are Black. Right. Um, but yet the teaching force is about 80% white. And, you know, some may not understand why representation is so important. And I really have found that, you know, quite honestly, a lot of people are privileged to understand it. Right. They don't understand what it means, you know, and, and I can be personal with this because I know what it feels like to be the black boy when my mother moved to the suburbs and I was in a predominantly white school and I was predominantly, you know, white, you know, friends and I didn't have a black teacher and did not realize that being surrounded and being the only one I was going through an identity crisis. I was, you know, I had some struggles in school. I began to think that, well, maybe white people are just more intelligent. Maybe they're more superior because I had come from a black school where, you know, and, you know, I went to a white school when I was in third grade, but the schools that I was before, I ended up going to this white school and I didn't know my multiplication facts. I didn't have the strongest comprehension skills. I didn't have the knowledge. The, the, the white children had so much knowledge that I did not have. 
And so I began to have, you know, uh, a, a deficit mindset, a deficit perspective about who I was and who my people were. Right. And it wasn't until I got to eighth grade and I remember this vividly. I got to eighth grade and had a black female teacher who actually said, you all are going to do an African-American project and everyone has to study an African-American person and think about their contributions. And can I be honest with you? I It was the first time in eighth grade where I sat back and I said, wow, all of my classmates had to do a project on a black person. Mm-hmm. And I had to confront the fact that African-Americans actually made a major significant contribution to this nation and that I had there was no reason why I should have a deficit mindset about myself or my community or my people or even my family and so that and it goes back to my point about it's more than just math reading science and social studies there's a social development that's a human development an identity development that is going on in schools and we have to understand that we play a role in that and so when you talk about black representation that's critical because if i don't get black teachers if i don't see black people having degrees Am I going to develop an image of that is for myself? And I know for, you know, some of our white educators um, may not understand it if they haven't thought about it. Because you get to grow up in a society where a majority of the most positive images, the people who are making all the decisions, the, the person who runs the school, all the classrooms are white. Right. And, and I think that, and, and that's why we have to understand that it's important. And so I get, you know, honestly, I get kind of bothered. Um, I was just on social media, you know, you know, almost what, an hour ago. And one of the, one of the social media posts in the literacy group was just around just diversity, diverse texts. And to see people today still talking about, well, if we just teach children how to read, that's that's just that's going to be the signifying factor. That's going to advance equity. And here I am, an educated black man, and I still have to deal with discrimination on a daily basis. And I know how to read, you know. And so to dismiss these, to dismiss these topics, to dismiss these realities. And then as a black person, when I see these comments or I hear these comments in meetings, right? I'm not supposed to get angry. I'm not supposed to say anything. I should understand their key point. But they don't realize that when they say those things, you're literally further minoritizing me, silencing me and dismissing my lived experience. And so, yes, representation matters and it matters in the classroom. It matters in the teachers. It matters in our, our texts. It matters in our task. It matters in, in like the cultures of our school. It does matter. And those who say or dismiss it as if it doesn't need to really think about why they're saying what they're saying because if they grew up 
And they have experiences that some of us who are minoritized have. Maybe they wouldn't say the same things that they're saying. Right. Well, I, I appreciate that you, you went really deep on that. And I was hoping you would, because that's, that's the kind of podcast we have here. I'm going to go a bit deep with you because um, I can really relate to um, some of the experiences that you had. I think for me, um, I benefited from having someone that tried to really, uh, really support me in my education very early on when that was an option. But economic things changed around the time that I was going to school. So when I when I first went to school, I was actually really ahead of my cohorts. And I was the only Black student in my school. And I was one of the only Black, um, part of one of the only Black families in the entire neighborhood. Actually, there was two, two Black families right next to each other, like in one of those old films. Um, and we had a lot of a lot of racial issues and tensions in the neighborhood and in the school. And uh, it's funny, I was talking to one of my black students um, about their experience having a black teacher because I didn't have that. And that student said something very, very enlightening to me. They actually crystallized and articulated a feeling that I couldn't quite articulate myself going through that experience as a young learner. They said that they felt going through school until they got to a class where they felt represented and they felt free to really explore their education. They felt like Ruby Bridges. And when they said that, I was like, wow, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's kind of, you felt like Ruby Bridges. And the student, as articulate as they were, said they just felt like they were allowed in the building, but they weren't allowed to learn. And instead of the mob being on the outside, intimidating, trying to keep them from going in the building, the mob was just inside now. Mm -hmm. And I was I was floored. I was gobsmacked. Um by that characterization from such a young student. And it really spoke to how I felt because I felt like I came into the education system as a young student ahead of my cohorts. And I still felt like I was being shut out of the learning process. And where the students really looked at me as a novelty, being the only black um, individual in their cohort. I didn't really get much racism from them until much later on. It was it was coming from the teachers. Mm -hmm. And it was it was so powerful and palpable. But as a young person, you didn't quite know exactly what you were experiencing until I was in grade three and I had a student just uh, not a student, a teacher just come out and really say it. Um, and I stood up in his class and I said, I, I refuse to learn from you. You are not my teacher anymore. And I think that started me on a course 
uh, a lot more blatantly. But of course, that I think a lot of other Black students can relate to that there's there's a sense of well, if they don't want to teach me, if they don't want to give me a chance, then I'm not going to play along. And uh, after that, I became very resistant to schooling in general. I, I would give myself my own assignments and I I would purposely not hand in things. And I, I became very odd um, mixture of uh, oppositional, behavior but I was so well mannered from home and still feared my parents but I really played that line um and, and that was at a time where people were more overt about their opinions like my grade my fifth grade teacher told me you're you're really intelligent for an African and the first thing I thought was wait a minute I thought I was born in Canada. Um, like I really was like, I didn't get the racism at the beginning. It took me a minute to really process the comment. And um, so I look at my students having a black teacher and I really sometimes really wonder kind of impact that really has. I can only imagine what the impact of that is. And I can only imagine what the impact would be if we had a lot more representation. So I'm I'm glad you went deep on that because I think there's a lot that there is to unpack in those experiences. Um, you know, as you were speaking, there's an ugly truth that we don't want to admit. You know, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King once said, I fear I may have integrated my people into a burning house. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us don't want to admit in education that a lot of our children, specifically Black children, walk into burning houses every day. Mm -hmm. And that burning house is the classroom because the teacher is racist or has unconscious bias that that child has to confront in multiple ways. But we don't always want to talk about that or admit that we almost, we, we act like every teacher in the United States of America just has every child, you know, you know, good intentions at heart. And we don't, we, we, we act like we, like it doesn't exist. And so when people like myself or people like you or our children and other advocates share these experiences, we're dismissed as if it's not true. And the reality of it is, if you have 80% of the teaching force that is white, please don't, you know, don't insult my intelligence and make me think that, oh, racism does not, does not come up. Unconscious bias doesn't come up. Stereotypes and prejudice doesn't come up. Like, and that's the piece that's really unnerving in that that's a piece that as, you know, as uh, community members, as parents and X, Y, and Z, we now have to equip our children to go into classrooms and deal with the racism that the teacher is throwing at, their, at our children. You know, even in my, in my work, 
with my doctoral study and I've been, you know, you know, interviewing my subjects and, you know, my participants, that's what I would call them. That's a better name for it. But to hear so many Black men say the things they hear other teachers saying about Black children, the way they see other teachers in their building treating Black children, that's why they're staying. Mm -hmm. They want to be a mediator so that that child has something, that that child has one class they can go to that's a safe haven because our discipline system, the expectations of teachers when it comes to, you know, students of color are so low. We see it. And, it, and it's just interesting that it's almost as if we don't want to admit that it's a, it is a pervasive issue in our educational system. Right. Right. You know, to kind of loop back and touch on something you said earlier, because this is a podcast that really promotes um, evidence-based practices. And we, we promote the concept that all students can learn at a high level and that there's, there's methodology, there's teaching practices, there's approaches and perspectives that are better than others and that teachers need to be equipped order into in order to to make those outcomes possible um but we understand that it's teaching and learning is more than just what's in the textbooks it's more than just how you can deliver a lesson and i think for me when that became super crystal was in my first full-time teaching experience i was teaching on reserve um, and that's uh, the Canadian vernacular of what I believe is called a reservations, like a um, you would say Indian reservations in America, I believe. And in Canada, we say First Nations and where they live is a reserve, but it's a very similar system. And I went to teach there first. And I taught in a very unique experience and, and setting when I when I first taught on reserve, because this was a super well-funded education system because of particular legislation for one of the First Nations groups in Canada. So they had a tremendous amount of funding for education. Um, so I was looking at what it looks like if a marginalized community had the state-of-the-art resources and tools. And I was still seeing low outcomes. I was still seeing like a lot of racism um, from, you know, educators. There was a lot of, you know, institutionalized racism and uh, what I would what I would say is like self hatred amongst the students that had to be broken down. And this is things that I saw in my community, but it, it 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 gave me this intense look at it, being able to be in a different community, struggling with some of the same issues and also seeing what it looks like if we got all the money in the world to spend on education and seeing how it wasn't enough. 
And when you talk about unconscious bias, I had an experience where I had set up my class, like you see in those pictures, and I invited parents in, and I didn't get a lot of parents coming to parents' night. And there was one parent in particular that I kept, you know, really trying to correspond with to get that parent in. And finally, I got her into my class, and I seen her walk past the door. And then she kind of averted her eyes and kind of walked off. So I raced out and I said, hey, how are you? And she turned around with a bright smile and we had a great conversation. I feel like we really connected on what we can do for her son. And then she went to walk away and I saw this slight hesitation, but she continued. So I turned and then she turned back and said, do you want to know why? I hesitated to come in your classroom. And I was hoping that it wasn't because I was a black teacher in a in a different community. One of the one of the few black teachers that were there. So I was really bracing myself for a comment like that. But what she told me was when I looked at the classroom and I saw how all your desks were in perfect little rows. It reminded me of the residential schools. Now, there's a history in Canada of, of uh, terrible abuses um, sanctioned by the government in Canada and sanctioned by major institutions, especially religious institutions in Canada, against the First Nations population where children were taken away and forcibly institutionalized in schools. And I realized that I took my idea of what a classroom is and I projected it on my students without even the slightest thought that I was doing anything that could be disruptive. And in that moment, I realized when I looked back at my class, this place that I thought was this perfect, you know, emblem of what I was trying to do. I looked back and I saw something different. I saw something closer to what she saw when she saw those perfect rows. And that's what got me to start questioning everything, every little thing, every textbook, every book I brought in my class, every decision. I started to question, where did I get these ideas in the first place? Where did I get these notions? If I'm trying to educate my students, which using the best practices, we should be giving our students the best education, getting them literate as quick as possible. So Mitchell, I think I have a question and I think a lot of my 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 listeners will have this question as well, especially if these listeners happen to be educators that are that are white or that are not a part of one of those marginalized communities that might be wondering um how do the the evidence-based practices fit in to teaching the whole student? How should they approach as an individual teacher if, uh, if let's say their school doesn't necessarily have initiatives to, to address this, but how should they approach giving that student the space and the opportunity 
to explore their culture in the classroom. And um, also, how can they be a, an ally in general for these students that we're referring to now? I think, you know, as I was alluding to earlier, the first piece of work that you have to actually do the work. Mm -hmm. And when I say do the work, because uh, I want to clarify for a second before I answer that. When you say evidence-based practices, what are you referring to? Are you referring to instructional practices in general? Are you referring to literacy, math? Like, what are you referring to? I'm referring to um, specifically um, practices that have been proven um, scientifically through experimental uh, research um, to show on high effect size so that these are methods and approaches that work the best for all students um, or for students in particular situations. And I would say that would include both what are the best practices when it comes to teaching um, core reading or teaching students um, that are dyslexic and also with math and STEM as well. And I would say that also includes practices that are more of an approach instead of an instructional um, method, such as collective self-efficacy is one of the most evidence-based practices out there. So I'm actually including all of that, but I'm just, what I'm saying is that it's gotta be something that has been proven to have an impact, a significant impact by experimental research. Got it. I want to respond in, in two ways, but I'm, a, I'm responding the first way first, and then I'm going to answer your question specifically. Okay. Um, because I think that's kind of the issue that I do have. Right. Because when we talk about, you know, random control groups and experimental design, we also need to own the fact of like, who owns that body of work and knowledge? Because oftentimes that becomes the quantitative realm. And we talk about, you know, minoritized people who are also scholars who have PhDs and, and X, Y, and Z. Sometimes we, we actually dismiss their work. That's actually a part of what would help. And what I mean by that is, so if you have a researcher in literacy who's saying, hey, you know, teaching children to monitor their comprehension and summarizing is so crucial, or we need to ensure that there's going to be um, instructional practices that aid students in encoding. That's 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 perfect. That's cool. That that works. That that's a piece of the puzzle. But when you have other researchers like you know Gloria Lansing Billings who's saying you need to examine people's culture. You need to understand their culture and, and how they move and their perspective and, and understand their triggers. Because in certain communities, when you do certain things and say certain things and, and get to certain topics, that could be that could bring up emotional trauma for them. And so when you get to these sensitive topics, you want to be able to navigate that with finesse. But, and I share that because when we always go the route of the experimental design, we also need to understand that we could also be 
barring us from a whole body of work that's actually causing some of the real issues that's going on in our classroom. The reason why you have that deficit mindset, the reason why you have low expectations, the reason why your discipline policies are so punitive to certain groups of students, those are things that you may not find, and especially in the literacy realm, you're not going to find that in the five pillars of reading. And so that's what I meant earlier when I said, you're going to have to, if you're going to be an ally, especially a white person who wants to be an ally to different subgroups, you're going to have to consult the body of literature in multiple spaces. Just like the you know science of reading is interdisciplinary, you as a culturally relevant teacher are going to have to be interdisciplinary as well and understand those bodies of research and use them to help you so that one, as you are looking at ELA curriculum, are you able to see the gaps in your tech set? Are you able to see that, oh, this I was going to have the kids read these four books, but it's all from the dominant perspective. Are you able to see that? And you may not, and, and guess what? In the science of reading, they will say build knowledge, but not everybody is saying, look at your tech set and see whose knowledge is being built, whose knowledge is being privileged. You would find that looking at another piece of body of work. So if I'm going to be that ally, yes, I need to have an interdisciplinary approach to how I build my knowledge. In the ELA classroom, I need to be thinking about how dialect may impact children's communication styles, their writing, their reading, their speaking, their listening. I, I want to look at my text sets and think about, am I presenting representation? Am I getting children to wrestle with um, key issues um, that allow them to think about disparities and equities? Am I doing that? Um, the other piece I would really be thinking about too is how am I also shaping children's academic identity in a way that celebrates who they are so that they're not stripping off themselves to become more like you? They're just becoming more complete as a human, understanding themselves and understanding you and understanding all the children that they're interacting with. So an ally is someone who's going to take more of a comprehensive approach. And it has to be that child's social emotional well-being. Like you have to, you have to address that because some of the very issues that children are experiencing that their parents have experienced in the educational system has to do with that, with that component. And then the evidence-based practices, the, the random control, the experimental design, don't withhold that from them. If you know that teaching conceptual mathematics builds knowledge units, builds you know pathways to being able to verbally reason, don't look at the student and say, well, because of this, I'm not going to offer you that. Understand that, you know, and, and Gloria Lansing Billy talks about, you know, this in her work around, you know, but that's just good teaching. Because everyone thinks to themselves, when you explain culturally relevant pedagogy, everyone says, well, that's just good teaching. Like you should be, you should care about children. You should use evidence-based practices. Everyone says that over and over again, 
We have to ask ourselves the true question then, then why are certain children getting and certain children not? Right. So, cause, cause that's where it, the, to me, the rubber meets the road there. Cause everybody wants to talk about evidence-based practices and just focus in on that. But when it comes to these minoritized groups, and if you notice, I keep saying minoritized because that's what's being done to subgroups. Right. You used to be asking yourself in your classroom, when I pull those small groups, am I minoritizing my children? When I decide who gets what task or not, am I minoritizing them? You know, when we think about concept of like redlining, you remember that back in the day we would redline our communities and, and certain communities got these resources based off of who lived there and, and who got home loans based off of your race and all of that. Mm-hmm. You should be asking yourself as a teacher, are my decisions redlining my children? And if my decisions are redlining them, meaning they won't be able to stand one day without the scaffolds that you're putting in place, then you need to check yourself. Because as an ally, I would expect you to do nothing that would redline me, that would bar me. So all those hundred of page books and novels, Teach me how to read them. Those science topics, make sure that I learn these science topics to nuanced levels so that I'm able to use the academic language of those texts. When it comes to building my textual lineage, make sure that I'm reading those text sets so that I do have the knowledge set that I can actually navigate a white dominant society. You see, When you're not redlining children, you're helping them navigate the structural issues that they're going to have to confront. And this is the piece that some of our our white educators need to understand. We don't live in a society where someone of color just gets a free pass just to walk to and fro and go up the corporate ladder and have all this access. We just don't. And so... You have to be aware of those pieces and to provide opportunities so that children can navigate it. And here's another piece as I as I, I end it and wrap it up, because I know you're tired of hearing me talk. I get it. No, 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 no. I want to hear another piece. It's what you just said earlier about, you know, the First Nations. Right. Here's a piece that I really find is hard. If you want to be my ally. Ask me how I want to be educated. Right, exactly. Stop coming to my community telling me this is how I should talk. This is how I should think. This is the knowledge that I should have. Some communities actually want to own how they're educated. And you have to realize that when you come to that community and tell them directly how you think they should be, you're minoritizing them. You're silencing them. You're redlining them. You're letting them know that you are the dominant perspective and they should adhere to you. And so I know it's hard because people are probably going to say, well, Mitchell, I need like this specific strategy. Right. And I hate to tell you all this, that when it comes to culture relevant pedagogy, You're not teaching phonemic awareness. 
There isn't a, this is not blending and segmenting. This is people's lives. And so you have to approach this a little bit different because there is no, there is no 10 top strategies to be culturally relevant. It's actually an orientation. It's an approach. It, if I'm going to be, if you want me to be more academic, it's actually a pedagogy. Right. And so if you're looking for the, you know, top 10 tools, you've already missed the boat. Because that's not what this is. Because the systemic issues, the racial, racialized structures that have been set in place, that have been maintained, are deeply embedded. So, and, 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 and let's be honest, that those, those racialized systems that exist started because of belief systems and mindsets about people. So you've got to shift your mindset. You have to shift your orientation. And you have to lean into discomfort. You can't be afraid to have an uncomfortable conversation and just and talk about some ugly truths if you're going to be an ally. Right. You know, um, but that was probably a long answer to a short question, right? No, no, no. I think that the way I framed the question was not entirely artful because I know what you're talking about is a lot bigger than, like you said, give me my my top 10 tools here. And I I just appreciate that you went in deep and you and you expanded on that on that question and gave um a fulsome answer. What I'll say is I'm just gonna wrap this up by um adding just one or two things to what you're saying. Um for the for the benefits of the listeners, I would say that when I went into that space where I was invited into a community, I came with this perspective that, you know, I don't know what this community needs. Just as you said, I need to learn from them how best to serve them. And I think that that allowed me, that perspective allowed me to learn as much as I did from that community. And when it came to being able to deliver um, culturally uh, responsive pedagogy, I realized that the, the easiest way was to just invite the students into the learning process. They were experts um, to some degree in their own culture. And together, they, they, they represented a body of knowledge. They were right there in my class. I just needed to show them make the learning process transparent so that they can see exactly how to bring um all of that equity that they had all of all of that that rich knowledge base that they have coming from their culture and uh, i think that that's probably um not only one of the most effective approaches um to that question um but i also think it's it's more simpler than a lot of a lot of the approaches that i feel like many canadian school boards are asking of their teachers 
the, the teachers are really feeling like, how are we going to become experts in something that we don't understand and um, we don't really feel like we have access to? Um, so I would say that, like you said, shift your mindset. Understand that the equity, the access, all of that knowledge base is right there often. You don't want to make your students spokespersons for their culture. You just want to invite them into the space and let them bring their culture as it is uh, and see how it's relevant. And the other thing I would add is that just to round off everything you've said about teaching the whole student is I want to make sure my my students know that I'm not here to be uh, the authority on what they must learn. Because I think, I think that's something that I find will lead to the outcome where I might be, in some cases, assimilating my students. Or in some cases, making it harder for them to, to be able to come back to their community and help their community as it is. I want to give them the tools, literacy, critical thinking. I want to build those things as quickly as possible using the best evidence I know how so that they can make of their education what they will and then give them the space to do that and to also let them know by the end what I want is I want you guys to be self-advocates and fully empowered in the learning journey and to be lifelong learners and if I've done a really good job, you will become your own teacher or at least be able to have your own expectations of, of and your own demands of your own education. Um, I think those are some of the most prof prof profound ways of approaching such a such a tough problem to get your hands around especially if you're not from the community that you're serving. Um, but I also think that they're more easily executed because you are giving away all of the control. You're not all of it, but you're giving away part of the control of the learning process to, to the people you're serving. Um, I don't know if you want to kind of add to that, I love what you, I love how you keep coming back to this collectivist piece. Mm -hmm. Because if you know the communities that you serve and you know that there's a collective piece to it, that is a part of it, right? Mm -hmm. To come back and to serve your community. There are certain communities where that is that is important. When we look at black, you know, black scholarship. A key component was you're being educated so that you can agitate the social order. Right. So, and so that's why, you know, I think it's so crucial and it's a collective piece to that. I think it's so crucial as what you said is I'm empowering you to do something for yourself and for your people. Mm -hmm. 
and and that's a critical piece as a as a teacher that you that you definitely want to you know you want to embody you want to know um so yeah i just doubled down there i just really appreciate you just kind of clarifying that because that's a significant point that's often missed because this is not about control it's about empowerment right um and and i know we're wrapping up but you know my lasting thoughts here is this i aim as personal like my personal you know point is i want to live in the intersection i want to be able to look at you know a range of body of literature and allow that to guide the work that i do and, and so I, I offer that to others as well. As you, you know, you go about your journey, how are you leveraging multiple bodies of literature to aid you in, you know, supporting, developing, um, cultivating, nurturing, and empowering our next generation of children? Um, because it is in that intersection that I think we find our answer. I think we find our pathway. Right. Okay. That was that was fascinating. I think we we got deep quite a few times there, and uh, I know my listeners they expect nothing less than that. So I really appreciate you coming to talk with us today. Um, can you let the listeners know how they can reach you, how they can learn more about you, they can get involved with whatever you're doing at this current time um, before we we end this this conversation quite honestly they can go on facebook and look up mitchell brookins they can also go on twitter and look up mitchell brookins follow me because i come right on up so if you want to follow me if you if, if you truly um want to build an army of people who are who truly want to eradicate illiteracy those are two ways to find me facebook and twitter Okay, perfect. Thank you, Mitchell. Um, really appreciate you coming out to talk with us. Thank uh, you so much. I'll talk to you soon. You are perfectly welcome. And uh, that's it. That's all we have today for you listeners. Have a great day.